Chapter 28 Telescopes and Observatories in the Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Modern Astronomy by Hector McPherson. Chapter 28 Telescopes and Observatories. The greater part of our knowledge of the science of astronomy is due to the marvelous instrument known as the telescope, which by magnifying the celestial bodies enables men to study them at much less than their actual distance. Before the invention of the telescope, there was certainly a science of astronomy, but it was chiefly a science of statistics, star catalogs, star positions, planetary positions, and apparent motions. Nothing was known of the surface of the moon, although it lies so close to us. Without the telescope, mankind would have remained in comparative ignorance of the outer universe. It is wonderful, then, that John Kepler addressed the newly invented instrument in these words, O telescope, instrument of much knowledge, more precious than any scepter, is it not he who holds thee in his hand, made king and lord of the works of God? Telescopes are of two kinds the refracting telescope, the most familiar, and the reflecting telescope. Of these, the refractor was the first to be invented. The first telescope was constructed in 1609 at Middleburg in Holland by an optician named Lippershey. The news of the construction of the first telescope reached Italy in the summer of 1609, when the idea of constructing one presented itself to the fertile mind of Galileo. In a letter dated August 1609, Galileo wrote, About two months ago, a report was spread here in Padua that in Flanders a spyglass had been presented to Prince Maurice, so ingeniously constructed that it made most distant objects appear quite near, so that a man could be seen quite plainly at a distance of two miles. This result seemed to me so extraordinary that it set me to thinking, and as it appeared to me that it depended upon the laws of perspective, I reflected on the matter of constructing it and was at length so entirely successful that I made a spyglass which far surpasses the report of the Flanders one. The effect of my instrument is such that it made objects fifty miles off appear as large as if there was only five. Such were the humble beginnings of the telescope, the instrument which revolutionized the science of astronomy. Galileo constructed a number of telescopes. The first was of little scientific value. The second was more useful and with the third he commenced his observations on the moon. With his fifth instrument, he discovered the satellites of Jupiter. The principle of the Galilean telescope is very simple. It is the simplest form of refractor through which the observer looks directly at the object of observation. The object glass, or large glass at the end, was, in the Galilean telescope, a simple convex lens. After Galileo's time, larger telescopes were constructed, but they were practically worthless owing to a difficulty of construction which for a time seemed insurmountable. Owing to the dispersion of light, the principles of which cannot be explained in a work like the present, the image of the object was not well shown, the edges having fringes around them similar to the colors of the rainbow. This phenomenon, known as chromatic aberration, increased as the object glasses increased in size. For some time, indeed, astronomers endeavored to surmount the difficulty by making telescopes immensely long. Huygens, Bianchini, and Cassini, astronomers of the 17th century, constructed telescopes over a hundred feet in length, 
they were very unwieldy, and little scientific work of importance was accomplished by means of them. Accordingly, Sir Isaac Newton, who devoted much attention to the subject, came to the conclusion that it was impossible to construct a refracting telescope which would be free of this defect. The same view was reached about the same time by the Scottish astronomer James Gregory. Both Newton and Gregory agreed in condemning the refractor, and both commenced to devise a new form of telescope. The form of telescope devised by them was the reflector, an instrument formed on the principle of reflection of light. In this form of telescope, the light coming into the telescope from the object to be observed was reflected into the eyepiece from the surface of a concave mirror constructed of alloy known as speculum metal. Gregory and Newton constructed instruments which, while similar in principle, differed slightly in detail. One of the drawbacks of the reflector is that a second reflection is necessary before the rays from the object under observation can enter the eyepiece. If the observer looked down the tube of the telescope at the image, he would at once cut off the light from the object he wished to observe. Newton, therefore, in his telescope, placed the eyepiece in the side, and into it the rays were deflected by a second reflection. Gregory, on the other hand, put the eyepiece immediately behind the principal mirror. The Newtonian form is the one most used. After Newton's invention, the reflecting telescope became very popular. Its chief development was due to Sir William Herschel, who gave it immense popularity. It is a remarkable illustration of the sequence of events that Herschel's development of the reflecting telescope was due to the fact that he was at first an amateur astronomer who obliged to make his own telescope. He constructed many reflectors and devised a modification of the Newtonian form, known as a Herschelian. In 1775, Herschel constructed his seven-foot telescope, and, after making instruments of 10, 20, and 30 feet in focal length, he constructed in 1789 the famous 40-foot reflector with which he discovered the inner satellites of Saturn. In the hands of Herschel, the reflecting telescope seemed to exhaust its possibilities, and men began to turn their attention to the despised refractor. In the 18th century, it was found to be possible by combining lenses of flint and crown glass in the object glasses of refractors to practically eliminate the aberration which had put a check on the advance of the refracting telescope. For some time, it was found difficult to procure object glasses of flint glass of sufficient size to make any considerable advance in telescope construction. However, in the hands of a firm of Swiss opticians, remarkable progress was made, and in 1823, a lens of 12-inch diameter was successfully finished. Meanwhile, the greatest development of the reflecting telescope was soon reached. Most people have heard of Lord Ross's telescope. It is, in point of size, about the largest telescope in the world, although its situation in the unfavorable climate of Ireland has rendered it practically useless within recent years. The history of this telescope is so interesting that it is worth giving it at some length. When quite a young man, the third Earl of Ross, conceived the idea of erecting the largest telescope in the world on his estate in Ireland. Being an amateur, he turned his attention to the reflecting telescope. As the late Miss Clark pointed out, he had to rely entirely on his own invention and to earn his own experience. He had no skilled workman to assist him. His implements, both animate and inanimate, had to be formed by himself. Peasants, taken from the plow, were educated by him into efficient mechanics and engineers. In 1827, he began to work, and it was not until April 1842 
15 years later that he succeeded in constructing the famous mirror, six feet in diameter, with which he was to survey the heavens. By February 1845, the telescope was ready for work. A tube, which resembled when erect one of the ancient round towers of Ireland, served as the habitation of the great mirror. The tube was no less than 58 feet long and 7 feet in diameter, so that when it was horizontal, a man of considerable height could walk through it holding an umbrella. Sir Robert Ball, for whom some years had charge of the great telescope, has the following interesting description of the instrument. Almost the first point which would strike the visitor to Lord Ross's telescope is that the instrument at which he is looking is not only enormously greater than anything of the kind he has ever seen before, but also that it is something of totally different nature. In an ordinary telescope, he is accustomed to find a tube with the lenses of glass at either end, while the large telescopes that we see in our observatories are also in general constructed on the same principle. At one end there is an object glass, and at the other end the eyepiece. And of course it is obvious that with an instrument of this construction, it is to the lower end of the tube that the eye of the observer must be placed when the telescope is pointed through the skies. But in Lord Ross's telescope, you would look in vain for one of these glasses, and it is not at the lower end of the instrument that you are to take your station when you are going to make your observations. The astronomer at Parsonstown has rather to avail himself of the ingenious system of staircases and galleries by which he is enabled to obtain access to the mouth of the great tube. Many valuable observations and discoveries were made by means of the Ross telescope during the first few years of its existence, but it was not long before the powers began to deteriorate. Its situation in the unfavorable climate of Ireland greatly injured its usefulness, and it is now a little more than an astronomical curiosity. It had only a few brilliant years of investigation and discovery. About the time the Ross telescope was erected, a new material for the construction of reflecting telescopes was invented by two independent French investigators, glass upon which a thin film of silver is deposited. These instruments have a light-gathering power far exceeding the telescopes whose mirrors are constructed of speculum metal. In June 1847, there was erected the famous Harvard refracting telescope of 15-inch aperture. This was the beginning of the development of the refractor. A 23-inch telescope on the same lines was conducted by a self-taught English optician in 1868, while a year or two later, another self-taught optician in America followed with the construction of the famous 26-inch telescope of the Washington Observatory, rendered famous by the discovery by the late Professor Hall, while using it, of the satellites of Mars. Next in the 80s came the erection of telescopes of 29.5 inches and 30-inch aperture, respectively for the observatories of Nice in France and Pulkawa in Russia. The 30-inch telescope of the Russian National Observatory was for some years the greatest refracting telescope in the world. But it did not retain this position for long. As one writer put it, the czar of all the Russias was outbid twice by an American millionaire. The first of these was James Lick, whose name is now immortalized in connection with the great observatory in California, where so many discoveries have been made. The story goes that Mr. Lick, a California millionaire, being very desirous of erecting a permanent memorial of himself and his wife, proposed to leave money for the erection of two immense statues on the Pacific coast. About this time, however, an astronomer suggested that in case of war, such statues would be liable to destruction by the enemy, and that a great telescope erected on one of the mountains in California 
would be much safer. Accordingly, Lick took up with much enthusiasm the erection of a gigantic telescope, making it a condition, however, that his remains would be interred below the base of the instrument. He died many years before the observatory was completed. The late Professor Newcomb remarks that the erection of an observatory was not in the millionaire's mind. All he wanted was a gigantic telescope. From his point of view, as indeed from the point of view of the public generally, the questions of telescopic vision is merely one of magnifying power. An observatory was, however, necessary in order to afford a house for the great telescope, but the idea of having the most powerful refracting telescope in the world was kept in view, and at last, an object glass 36 inches in diameter was constructed. The observatory was placed on Mount Hamilton, a lonely elevation 4,250 feet high in California, amid the purest air where the largest instrument could be used to an advantage. In 1888, the observatory was finished, and the great Lick telescope entered a long career of usefulness. Unlike the magnificent telescope of Lord Ross, ruined by its situation in a poor climate, the great Lick telescope is still in the prime of its life. The discovery of new double stars, of a new satellite of Jupiter, the measurements of nebular motion, within a few years of the erection of the telescope, is a testimony not only to the excellence of the instruments, but still to the skill of the observers. Men such as Professors Burnham, Barnard, Keeler, and Campbell, whose names are deservedly famous in astronomy. The colony of astronomers on Mount Hamilton is isolated from the rest of the world, and it requires a considerable amount of self-sacrifice to pursue astronomy under those conditions. To those in actual charge of the telescope, says a well-known astronomer, the situation is not without its disadvantages. They are at some distance from the town and without many of the comforts of civilization. The winter on the mountain is severe and brings with it at times considerable privations. In one winter, there was actually no water to drink except what had passed through the engines. The Great Lick Telescope enjoyed for about 10 years the place of the greatest telescope in the world. At length, Mr. Yerkes, another millionaire, gave to the University of Chicago money to equip an observatory and erect a telescope 40 inches in aperture, 4 inches greater than the Lick Telescope. This great telescope was set up in 1898 at the new observatory of the University of Chicago, Williams Bay, Wisconsin, 80 miles from Chicago. Here it is in the hands of expert observers. Foremost among the other astronomical institutions in America must be placed the Carnegie Observatory on Mount Wilson in California. Dr. Andrew Carnegie, unlike Messrs. Lick and Yerkes, is deeply interested in all things scientific, and his donations to the Carnegie Institute have conferred inestimable benefits on astronomy and astronomers. In 1905, the Carnegie Observatory on Mount Wilson was founded, and its head was placed Professor Hale, one of the most distinguished astronomers of the United States. Among the instruments erected here are the 60-inch reflector, with which much important work has been done, while greater things are expected from the 100-inch silver-on-glass reflector, which surpasses Lord Ross's famous telescope in the point of size. Like the Lick Observatory, the Carnegie Observatory is isolated from civilization, and it is a matter of self-sacrifice to be an astronomer on Mount Wilson. The view that a certain atmosphere is essential to good astronomical work has been maintained for many years by Professor Percival Lowell, who established in 1894 the now famous Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona. Here he erected his 18-inch and 24-inch refractors, which he claims to be almost unrivaled for space-penetrating power, 
and here he also proposes to erect a 40-inch reflector for photographic purposes. Work amid surroundings so far removed from human habitation entails, as we have remarked, a good deal of self-sacrifice. But, as indicated by Professor Lowell's remarks, it seems to have also a certain charm. To sally forth into the untrod wilderness in the cold and dark of a winter's small hours of the morning, with the snow deep upon the ground and the frosty stars for mute companionship, is almost to forget oneself a man for the solemn awe of one's surroundings. Fitting portal to communion with another world, it is through such avenue one enters on his quest, where the common and familiar no longer jostle the unknown and strange. The Harvard College Observatory in Massachusetts has none of the advantages of the great institutions already named, so far as climate is concerned, yet it has a reputation and a record second to none. Professor E.C. Pickering, the director of the observatory, has raised the institution to a high standard of efficiency. Photographic work is one of the specialties at the observatory. He charts the sky once a month with a smaller instrument and on a smaller scale. He charts the brighter stars every fine night, so that if a star brighter than sixth magnitude makes its appearance in any part of the heavens, he would have a record of it on the first clear evening. Turning from the great institutions of the New World to the more historically interesting observatories of the old, we find two, Greenwich Observatory and Paris Observatory, which have the greatest historical interest in the world. The Paris Observatory was erected a few years before the sister institution, being completed in 1671. Four years later was laid the foundation stone of the Royal Observatory of Greenwich, of which the famous John Flamsteed was made director with the title of Astronomer Royal. It is not too much to say that the science of practical astronomy was founded at Greenwich. The work of Bradley, the third Astronomer Royal, forms an epic in the history of astronomy. The history of this great and honorable institution would take too long to record here. The object for which the observatory was founded, practical astronomy, is still regarded as the chief side of the work, and for this a large instrument is not required. Still, Greenwich is at the same time thoroughly progressive, and a good deal of photographic and observational work is done. The observatory boasts a 28-inch refractor, a very fine instrument. The Paris Observatory is also deservedly famous having been presided over by a succession of famous men who have done much for the development of astronomy. These two observatories occupy the chief places among the institutions in Europe for the cultivation of astronomy. Other famous observatories in Europe include Edinburgh, Potsdam, Pokova, Heidelberg, Milan, and Rome. The Edinburgh Observatory was founded in 1776, a century after the Greenwich Observatory and was originally the property of the Astronomical Institution of Edinburgh, being erected for the convenience of members of the institution who wished to make practical observations. It was enlarged in 1811, and with its instruments, the famous astronomer Henderson, who first measured the distances of the stars, made his earliest observations. In 1834, the observatory, which occupied a fine position on Carlton Hill, Edinburgh, became government property. It was converted into a royal observatory and at its head was placed Thomas Henderson, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Edinburgh, who became Astronomer Royal of Scotland. In 1896, a new Royal Observatory was erected on Blackbird Hill in the outskirts of the city, away from the smoke of the city. The new institution is second only to Greenwich among British observatories. The old observatory buildings on the Carlton Hill were acquired by Edinburgh Town Council, 
the Council converted them into a city observatory, mainly for educational purposes. It, however, possesses the largest telescope in Scotland, a 22-inch refractor. The observatory at Potsdam is equipped with a magnificent 28-inch refractor. This institution is known as the Astrophysical Observatory because the new side of astronomy, the study of astrophysics, the physical investigation of heavenly bodies, is chiefly pursued there. The observatory was founded in 1874 and was the scene of the labors of the great German astronomer Vogel. Polkova Observatory was founded in 1835 by the Tsar of Russia. It was equipped with what was then one of the greatest telescopes in the world, while one of the most famous astronomers, William Struve, a German observer, was placed at its head. In 1884, under his son and successor, Otto Struve, the observatory was furnished with what was, at the time, the greatest telescope in the world. It is now, however, much behind the American observatories in point of size of its telescopes. It has been directed by a succession of very able astronomers. The Heidelberg Observatory is one of no great antiquity, but its record is a noble one. It was erected in 1893, and at its head was placed Professor Max Wolf, the great astronomical photographer. Here was erected the famous photographic telescope by means of which Dr. Wolf has secured his beautiful photographs. The Italian observatories of Milan and Rome are famous chiefly from the historical interest, which attaches to them. The Berra Observatory in Milan was the scene of the work of Professor Schiaparelli for upwards of 40 years. Favored with a magnificent sky and a fair-sized instrument, Schiaparelli certainly made the most of his opportunities. The Observatory of Rome was the scene of the labors of two distinguished men, Secchi and Ticini, who favored the beautiful climate of Italy, were also enabled to make the most of their opportunities in a different field of astronomical research, solar and stellar physics. Among the observatories in the Southern Hemisphere, three may be mentioned specifically. The Cape Observatory, the scene of the work of Thomas Henderson and more recently of Sir David Gill, the Cordova Observatory in Argentina, and the observatory at Arequipa in Peru. The last named is the Southern Observatory Station of Harvard College Observatory, which thus surveys both hemispheres of the sky. End of chapter 28